0: Thanks for listening to another message from Life Christian Church. We hope it challenges and encourages you and helps you to grow in your faith. Don't forget, download our app to stay up to date with what's going on at life. Share your prayer requests or pray for others. Read the Bible online and much, much more. Simply search for Life Christian Church in your app store. Well, we've been doing a series um, based on the writings of Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, which is a really, really interesting book. Solomon, uh, for those who are familiar with a little bit of his life, uh, he was an incredible leader, he was an incredible king, uh, and he, he started out a very, very godly, God-honoring man. But it, it tells us uh, in 1 Kings 11 and 9, the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. And then we have three interesting phrases that are repeated through this book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, The first is the word meaningless, which occurs uh, 35 times. And in fact, it's the opening of his letter. Ecclesiastes 1 and 1, the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless and the reason uh, it's meaningless is found in verse 3 where he says, what does a man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun and that phrase under the sun is repeated 32 times in the book and that phrase under the sun is simply talking about life as it appears to be from a humanistic perspective so there's, there's no reference to anything spiritual, any sense of God, anything above or beyond or around this life. It is what you get. And uh, so this is the perspective from which he writes this book. And, and the conclusion, which is the third uh, phrase that we see repeated, uh, is uh, that it's like a chasing after the wind, which is a phrase that's used nine times. So he's saying living life from a human pers- or humanistic perspective, living life uh, from this sense of... This is just life the way it is. Uh, It is. uh, He's saying it's pointless. It's meaningless. It's 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 like it's like chasing the wind. You can't catch the wind, nor can you find meaning purely living life from a, a, a materialistic perspective. And the theme of his book is about searching for meaning and and he talks about a lot of his exploits he talks about a lot of his achievements and that these were the avenues that he explored to try and find meaning and purpose in life but it doesn't matter what he where he looks or what he tries it's interesting that uh, his analysis after he talks about all those different exploits and avenues is that it's all meaningless there's no purpose and so as we want to continue today, I want to look at one of those particular avenues that he tried that is actually uh, very, very uh, relevant to every single person in this room. And that is the, uh, the element of work and wealth. Um, what is the meaning and what is the purpose of work and wealth? Uh, If we're not involved yet in work, some of our young people are deciding what they want to be when they finish their education. Uh, It's certainly something that is really, really important for them right now. For others, we find ourselves in the season of life where we're right in the middle of that stuff. But Solomon writes this in Ecclesiastes 5 and 10, "'Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This, too, is meaningless.'" Verse 11, as goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner or wealth lost through some misfortune so that when he has a son, there is nothing left for him. Naked, a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hands. This, too, is a grievous evil. As a man comes, so he departs, and what does he gain since he toils for the wind? Ecclesiastes 6 and 1, I've seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily on me. God gives a man wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing his heart desires but God does not enable him to enjoy them, and a stranger enjoys them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. And verse 7: All man's efforts are for his mouth, and yet his appetite is never satisfied. Wow, what an interesting perspective on wealth and work. Friends, every single one of us has to contend with uh, this difficult exercise of trying to find the right balance in regards to money. And work and we live in a world that culturally conditions us even from the earliest stages of childhood that your meaning and purpose in life ultimate fulfillment is all tied up in what you will be when you grow up it's all tied up in the pursuit of career and the pursuit of wealth which yes it will bring stability it will bring opportunity in life But we need to understand that the activity that we call work is a means to an end. It's designed to accomplish something that is needed, but our lives get very, very quickly out of balance when we become totally consumed by the activity of work and we fail to disconnect from work at our expense and the expense of those closest to us. And, and life certainly becomes very, very out of balance if we find our work to be something that is very, very draining and we fail to do the things in life that will recharge us and refuel us. Many years ago, or well not that too long ago, and I can't remember how long exactly, but remember it very clearly, which proves it's a very, very good slogan. But uh, Mars Bars had the slogan that said, a Mars a day helps you work, rest and play. And it talks about three areas or three avenues in life that are pretty critical areas uh, that Solomon actually kind of refers to through this book. The importance of work, the importance of rest, and the importance of play or recreation. They are three key areas, and we've got to find the balance. Uh, Exodus 20 and 9 says this, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but, uh, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God verse 11 for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and sea and all that is in them but he rested on the seventh therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy God uh, in that phrase talks about work in fact it's almost implied that's a command there is this command to work but there is also a command to cease from working a command to rest so God knows what we need now in regards to work which is what I want to focus on today. Uh, Solomon was—he uh, must have been a workaholic. I mean, my goodness, his achievements are phenomenal. But we know that he was uh, the most successful in uh, most successful king in Israel's history for the forty years that he sat on the throne. They did not know war the whole time. Uh, he was uh, very, very successful from a political perspective. Um, so, you know, even at that level, the, the the responsibility that he carried, it would have been all-consuming. But not only that, it tells us that he also had a 1,000 women in his wife, in his wife, in his life. Uh, he had uh, 700 wives and 300 concubines. Now, I certainly don't put that in the recreation. Uh, that's hard work. Uh, so he was, sorry, that wasn't an offensive statement, was it? It's just the volume of people. Um, that That's... <laughs> Uh, they just, just suddenly got awkward in the room. But here's the thing. With the responsibility that he carried, with the busyness that he carried in life, he was also a man that pursued other things. He had other interests. 1 Kings 4 and 32, he spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs numbered 1,005. He described plant life from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of walls. He also taught about animals and birds, reptiles and fish. So even though this guy would have been incredibly busy, he still found time to engage in his interests. The time to sit down under a tree and write a thousand and five songs. Uh, obviously he took great interest in the natural world, and that was something that he invested some time in. But these were his hobbies. Now, we're we're not going to look particularly at the rest and recreation uh, part of aspect of this message today. I want to look particularly uh, at Solomon's response to work and to wealth. Because as Solomon looks out on the world, and from this perspective of this writing, assesses the world from that humanistic viewpoint, uh, he comes to some really discouraging conclusions about work. And here are some of them. Uh, Ecclesiastes 1 and 3, we've already read. What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Uh, And then he kind of develops that. Ecclesiastes 2 and 10, My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for my labor. In other words, I enjoyed my work, Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was to be gained under the sun. Now most of us spend a lot of time at work. It is a huge chunk of our life that is spent at work. Most young people nowadays will go to school for about 12 years Then they may go on to a trade or some kind of apprenticeship or further study or university. So that can be anything from two or three or four or eight years in further study. And then all of that sets us up for 40 years of working life. And the purpose of our working life is to earn money so that we can one day buy a home, and we can buy clothes and food and cars, and the cars take us to work in order to earn money so that we can live in homes and have clothes and food and cars that will drive us to work so that we can earn money so that we can have homes and clothes and food and cars to allow us to go to work to earn money. And so it goes on and on and on. And this is the kind of thing that Solomon is talking about, that there is this endless cycle that seems so futile lived from this perspective. It's a chasing after the wind. There is nothing gained under the sun. There is nothing gained living life purely from that materialistic, humanistic perspective. Here's, what some, here's something else Solomon has to say, Ecclesiastes 2 and 20. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then he must leave it, all he owns, to someone who has not worked for it. This too is meaningless, a great misfortune. What does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving with which he labors under the sun? All his days his work is pain. And grief. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This too is meaningless. So, not only is there a sense of futility, but there's also a great sense of fatigue. It's like this is exhausting, it's tiring. And he says that, uh, chapter 10 and 15. A fool's work wearies him, he does not know the way to town. It's like, I am so exhausted, I don't even know which way is up. I don't know why I'm doing what I'm doing. I don't know where I'm going. And it wearies him. Uh, chapter 1 and 8. All things are wearisome more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear it's full of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. And so he just talks about this endless cycle, this perpetual cycle. Life seems to be this endless cycle of things that you just do all the time and it doesn't seem to go anywhere and it seems like nothing is new. So when you're a child, you get up in the morning and you have your wheat bix and then you go to school and you come home and you play and you watch TV and you go to bed and you get up and you eat your wheat bix and you go to school and you come home, you play a little bit, you watch TV and you go to bed. Then you grow up a little bit and you get into high school and you get up and you eat your Cocoa Pops and then you go to school. And then you come home. You do your homework. You spend way too much on a time on a device. Then you go to bed. You get up. You eat your cocoa Pops. You go to school. Uh, you come home. You do your homework. You spend way too much time on a device. And then you go to bed. And then you get up. Now, finally, you get a job. And by this time, you've graduated to just right. So you, <laughs> you wake up. You eat your just right. You go to work. Uh, And there are days at work where you wish you were back at school, uh, but you come home. (laughs) That was too enthusiastic. (laughs) But you come home and you take a nap, you go to bed, you get up, you have your dress right, you go to work, you come home, you take a nap, you go to bed. Uh, Then one day you get married. Now you've got to work even harder. And you come home from work. Fall into bed, wake up the next day, your wife, being a health nut, now has you on organic muesli. <laughs> and you go to work, you come home, you watch TV, you talk to your wife you or your husband, you go to bed, you get up, you have your organic muesli, go off to work and it's this repetitive cycle. Then you have a baby and you've got to work even harder. <laughs> and when you do come home from work, there's no time for anything when you have a baby. But you go to bed, you get up, you have your protein shake with chia seed blended with yoghurt and fresh fruit. (laughs) Then you go to work, you come home, you get up. I'm not going to repeat that again. (laughs) But then you have another baby, or two, or three, or four, or five, some people in this room. Now you've got to go and get two jobs you get up and you eat your no-name brand cornflakes because that's all you can afford. But then the kids grow up. And they leave home and you retire. And you wake up every day and you have no idea what you will do for the day, but you eat your all-brand. then you go back to bed, and you wake up. <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. I didn't think it was that funny when I wrote it. but uh. Then you eventually have a few grandchildren. You do a bit of grain nomading around the place. You graduate to putting prunes on your all brand just to <laughs> help things out a little bit. And then one day, it's all over. Now, I know know it sounds a little bit futile and depressing, but this is exactly what Solomon is expressing. And in regards to work, we live our whole lives in this delicate balance that says if you work too little, you won't have enough, or if you work too much, then you get health problems and family problems. You starve if you do too little, or you burn out if you do too much. And that's why he says in chapter 5 and verse 12, the sleep of the laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. This is fascinating. He's actually saying in context here that having too much is a bigger problem than having too little because there is a myth about wealth that says this, the more I have, the more content I will be. But the reality is the more I have, the more I have to look after it. And the more I have to look after, the more I become afraid that I might actually lose it. And the more afraid I might lose it, then the harder I work to keep it. And the harder I work to keep it, the more worried I can't become about losing it. And the very thing that I thought would bring me contentment actually brings me anxiety. And so he says the laborer, And probably in context, the unskilled laborer who just goes out and works for a boss every day, does his job, gets his paycheck, goes home. He has got less to worry about than the boss that he's working for. And he says his sleep is sounder than the boss that he's working for. So there is this sense of futility about it all. Uh, chapter 5 and 15, Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes so he departs, he takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. This too is a grievous evil. As a man comes, so he departs. What does he gain since he toils for the wind? In other words, he's saying, you can't take it with you when you die. Chapter 2 and 17, So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless a chasing after the wind. So what Solomon is expressing here is this pattern of work, of getting up in the morning, of going to work, of coming home, of going to bed, of getting up, of going to work, of coming home, of going to bed. But what's it all for? What's it for? And that's the big question. He's saying from a humanistic perspective, from a material perspective, it's meaningless. And so he tries to dig into it to find some kind of meaning, as we all do, And and I want to look at four different motivations that Solomon touches on really, really briefly. Motivations for work, four different reasons why we do what we do. And the first motivation is an obvious one, and it's simply to acquire money, to acquire wealth. Ecclesiastes 10 and 19. A feast is made for laughter, and wine makes life merry, but money is the answer for everything. Money is the answer for everything. At least that's probably what he thought when he started accumulating vast amounts of wealth. But then this is what he discovered, chapter 5 and 10, whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. In other words, it's not enough. And the lie of wealth says that if I just get a little bit more, I will be satisfied. But we're not, because we always want just a little bit more. And the sad reality is that in the world today, there are so many people working so hard to get money that will never, ever satisfy. So that is motivation number one, we work to accumulate money. Motivation number two, you can work just to survive. In other words, I go to work just simply to provide for the necessities of my life and my family. Uh, Chapter six and seven, all man's efforts are for his mouth, yet his appetite is never satisfied. You know, a a lot of people live just simply to make ends meet. They're not accumulating money and they just live hand to mouth. They just, you know, uh, uh, make this week's paycheck stretch to next week's paycheck. They work just to live. Motivation number three that he touches on is envy and pride. And how dangerous is this one? Solomon basically says, listen, there's a lot of people earning money or work for money just to prove themselves, to prove something. But he says this in chapter 4 and 4, "...I saw that all labor and all achievement spring from man's envy of his neighbor. This too is meaningless at chasing after the wind." So he said, man, you can, you can be competitive when it comes to money and wealth. Uh, you can become envious of your neighbor. And this is, this is a huge motivation for acquiring money and wealth. So you can do it to prove something. You can work out of envy. But he says, this too is meaningless." In today's speak, we call it keeping up with the Joneses. Uh, you know what keeping up with the Joneses is? It's spending money that you don't have to buy things that you don't need to impress people you don't like. So motivation number one, we can work to accumulate money. Number two, we can work to uh, just to survive. Uh, third motivation, we can work out of envy and pride. Motivation number four that he speaks a lot about is you can work to leave an inheritance. Ecclesiastes 4 and 8, there was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless and miserable business. In other words, he's saying, because I have nobody to leave my wealth to, there is a meaninglessness to me going to work every day. But then he also says that even if you do have somebody to leave it all to, that's also meaningless. And he says this, I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So Solomon does a really good job of presenting all of these different points of view and these different perspectives and different motivations in regards to work and wealth. And he tries to give some answers, but they are just incredibly temporary and like a temporary fix and very superficial answers. But in regards to work... Solomon's summary basically is this You can toil your whole life to achieve something that does not buy happiness, it doesn't buy satisfaction, it doesn't buy peace of mind or security. You can't take it with you when you die, and you have no control over how it's spent when you are dead. So here is his advice. Here is the answer to all this meaninglessness that he sees in this regard. Chapter 2 and 24, a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. In other words, eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. But how sad it is that that is the mantra for so many people living in the world today who live from a purely humanistic perspective. He says, my life is all about me. It's three score years and ten, and it's back to dirt when I'm dead. And so I'm just going to, you know, who dies with the most toys wins. But they never get to that place of asking the bigger questions. What is life really all about? Why am I here? What is the meaning of life? And sadly, so many people just shut their eyes and close off their minds to those kinds of questions. And they just focus on the eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow I die. But there is an answer to Solomon's dilemma. And in fact, Jesus addresses this. So we go to the words of Jesus where he says this, Do not work for food that spoils but for food that endures to eternal life. And Solomon's repeated comments about work and wealth is that, listen, it's only for today. It lasts only for now. It doesn't go any further than this immediate present. It's life under the sun. It is this here and now perspective. But Jesus, in contrast, says don't work for food that spoils. Don't work for food that perishes. Don't work for things that are just now. And can I just put a footnote in here? It does not mean that this stuff is not important. It doesn't mean that now is not important. We'll get to that in a moment. But it comes to the motivation for what it is that we do and why we do it. And our motivation should never be for the here and now. Our motivation should never be who dies with the most toys wins. Uh, When Jesus says working for food that spoils, he's saying, you know, if that's all we do, if we're just working for temporary stuff, If we're just working for the things that this world offers, we will never, ever be satisfied. But there is a food that we work for that endures to eternal life. That's Jesus' words. But here's the thing. What Jesus encourages us to do is to adjust our perspective, to reorientate our lives. That he helps us realize that life is not primarily about meeting our needs and achieving our personal goals, even though those things are important and necessary. But there is a much bigger picture that is built around God's purpose. And for us, it is about how we find our purpose and our meaning and our stuff and our wealth and our pursuits and our careers, how that fits into a much bigger picture, which is God's purpose. And, and when I say God's purpose, I'm not talking about selling up everything you've got and going and being a missionary in some far-flung place. I'm not talking about, uh, you know, going into vocational ministry, that I've got to go and be a pastor or a minister or something like that. I- I'm talking about, friends, just, just being Jesus wherever you are. You, you, if, if you're a bus driver or a doctor or a teacher or an accountant or a nurse or a tradesman or a shop owner or a stay-at-home parent, as well as those who are called to be pastors and the like. Colossians 3 and 17, the Apostle Paul says, Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Friends, whatever it is that you do in life that provides for your needs and the needs of your family, do it in the name of Jesus. Do it under the authority of Jesus. Do it seeking the bigger purpose, the bigger purposes of God. Do it desiring to plug into God's agenda and to fulfill God's agenda. We don't do what we do working for food that perishes. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 4 and 18. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen. That's the stuff that perishes. He says we we fix our eyes on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. It does perish, spoil or fade as the Bible says in another part. But what is unseen is eternal. And friends, I encourage you this morning, whoever you are, and I don't know, you know where you stand with God, but what I do know is this, that this life, the three score years and ten that the Bible talks about, it's, it's not all there is. That God looks at you and he doesn't assign to each one of us some time frame that is according to age. And I've said this, I think, recently in context of another message, but God doesn't look around a room like this and give us, you know, that chronological assignment that says, well, you know, 85 years and, you know, 56 years and 72 years and all those, you know, that's that's what we see. God has one measure of time for every human that he created. He says, eternity, 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 eternity. It is us who measures life and the longevity of life as somehow being valuable. God says, it's, it's eternal life that has the greatest worth and the greatest value. Uh, and friends, in the context of this, God has a plan and a purpose for you. God has a plan and a purpose for all of our lives Walking a faith journey with Jesus is not about filling in time before we go to heaven. Walking a faith journey with Jesus is saying, God, why am I alive now? Because it's not about going to work and eating just right. It's about God, I'm plugging in, I, I walk every day in whatever my world looks like and whatever my career path looks like and whatever my life looks like. I walk every day knowing I'm plugging in to a bigger agenda and a bigger purpose. We have a mission to fulfill. Paul talks about that mission. 2 Corinthians 5 and 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. Listen to this. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal Through us. And friends, if you're a Christian here this morning, the implications of this passage are absolutely huge. It means if you were a Christian this morning, God has entrusted to you this message of reconciliation. If you're a Christian here this morning, this passage clearly tells us that we are Christ's ambassadors in the world. That if you're a Christian here this morning, God makes His appeal through us. That means in your home, you're on mission. In your workplace, you're on mission. In your leisure time, whatever that looks like, you're on mission. In your school, you're on mission. And we often talk in the language of bringing people to Christ. But I want to challenge you to hear this morning that that is not the call of the gospel. The call of the gospel is bringing Christ to people. And we're on mission wherever we go. We are Christ's ambassadors. Now, important footnote, that does not mean that we're the religious nutters sitting in the staff lunchroom by ourselves in the corner because people just go, man, that person is weird. Stay away from them. It is about, because, let me back up. And we know people like that, don't we? Sadly. Sadly. But when we are living in relationship with Jesus, Jesus in us and through us should attract, not repel. And and I often talk and think in context of the ministry of being. Just the ministry of being. I don't have the scripture reference, but Paul in another part talks about We are to God the aroma of Christ in the world. First to those who are being saved and those who are perishing. Words to that effect. We are the aroma of Christ to God. Sometimes we read that passage and think we are the aroma of Christ to the world. I think more importantly, taking the passage as read, you and I are to God the aroma of Christ. And I pray that we stink good. I pray that when we do sit in the lunchroom, we're not sitting in the corner because people go, there's the religious nut. That people sit with us and and just not even knowing what they're doing, start pouring their heart out to us. Because something of Christ in us means this is a safe place. Something about the love of Christ in us is just warm and accepting and caring. And people just become attracted to us. Friends, wherever I go, I bring the fragrance of Jesus with me. That is God's intent. Wherever I go, whatever I do, whether in word or deed, I do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And I love this peculiar passage that I have shared many, many times before, Matthew 5 and 16, in the same way, Let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. I love that. We read over it and don't even, it doesn't even strike us as being unusual. Notice that they see your good deeds. They don't say, hey, that's really good deeds. You're an awesome person. They see your good deeds and the glory goes to God. Because they recognize there is something about the way that you live your life that causes me to believe there is one, only one explanation. And it is that the God you talk about, the God you say you serve, the God that you know, there's something real and substantive about that. And that's what I pray for each and every one of us. Friends, evangelism, being on mission is a lot easier when you recognize it's less about doing and more about being. That makes it a far less scary road because so often we think of evangelism in terms of standing up on a soapbox on the corner and handing out tracts and telling everybody they're going to hell unless they repent and turn to Jesus. Uh, You know, God bless them. But it's the heart of Jesus shining through us that doesn't repel but attracts. That we would leave here and be people who are truly on mission, knowing that we are God's ambassadors, ambassadors of Christ Jesus, that He's making His appeal through us. It's about being the salt of the earth. It's about being the light of the world. 1 Corinthians 15 and 58, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully... To the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And friends, it is that which brings meaning to even the most routine and mundane of tasks. It can bring meaning into the most boring of jobs. Solomon had lost his eternal perspective, so everything that he did became meaningless. And I I just wonder through this period of his life, if he had stayed on track with God to see that meaning restored. But friends, we can live our lives in the same way where everything seems just a little bit meaningless. Or we can live it for the glory of God. We can live it in the power of God. We can live it for the purpose of God. Which I tell you, when we have that front and center, it it can make everything look bright and rosy because suddenly there is purpose. And even in those times where life might be challenging or a little bit tough, when things do go wrong as they sometimes do, we don't find ourselves lying on the bed in hopeless despair going, it's meaningless, it's meaningless, it's even more meaningless because things are going badly. But you can lie in your bed at night and with every confidence say, you know what God, I know that this right now is not what life is all about. That life is more than this, that life is bigger than this, and that you are bigger than whatever it is I'm facing right now. So Jesus says in Matthew 6 and 19, Don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And friends, here's the simple key understanding this, what it means to lay up treasures in heaven. The simple, simplest way that I can explain it is in these terms. You lay up treasure in heaven simply by living right now on earth with heaven in mind. That is, you live with Jesus as the central focus of your life. That He is the Lord of every area of your life. That you relate every area of your life to Him. And maybe there are some here this morning that need to have that restored. Just, you know, maybe for you, it just seems like this endless merry-go-round of doing the same stuff over and over again. And I just really encourage you just to reach out for a purpose greater than yourself, which will bring meaning back into even the most mundane of stuff.